Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simon, the son of Josek, the son of Judah, the son of Jonan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelti, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Elizer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Elkim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Zeber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphraxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Malhalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let me say, if you're new to Bible things, a long list of names like that, called a genealogy, may seem slightly dull when it's read. But actually, this passage, including the genealogy, is hugely, hugely exciting. This is a world-changing moment being described in Luke's Gospel. It's a reason to um, recognize Jesus as the one who can help the whole world, every human being. So let me pray for God's help uh, as we begin. Our Father, we do thank you for your word about your Son, and we pray that you would help me to be faithful to it, and for all of us to open our ears and hearts to listen to it, to listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Oh, please keep Luke 3 and 4 open. And I want to begin this morning by talking about disappointment. Now, I'm aware, actually, it's been a week when a number of us will have felt disappointment, real painful disappointment at circumstances, kind of hearing how long it will be till we're able to gather as a group of 50 even again at church. But actually, even though that is challenging, and I hope we're supporting each other in it, this is not a passage about circumstantial disappointment, disappointment in our circumstances. It's a a passage about disappointment in people. How do we deal with it when people let us down, especially when leaders let us down? People that we hoped would be exemplary, the best of us, perhaps raised our hopes for a, a breath of fresh air, and actually they end up disappointing us. Now, just in case, given Friday's headlines uh, in in Scottish politics, just in case you think, oh no, this morning's sermon is going to be about kind of the ongoing civil war in the SNP, don't panic. That's not uh, the main thing we're talking about. But I think it includes that. See, the Bible does tell us to honor our government, to pray for them, submit to them. But nevertheless, sometimes we do that alongside a sense of Disappointment. As the inquiry is going on, um, I guess we don't yet know enough to be sure uh, whether our first minister currently or our former first minister is misleading. But given how strongly they clash in what they're saying, someone must be lying. And actually, that's not unique to Scottish politics. I'm not taking a dig at them in particular, because in many ways the rise of the SNP has come from disappointment in Westminster and some of the lies being told about Brexit. And I'm not being specific to UK politics. Nikki Haley, the former US ambassador to the United Nations, said recently of the former President Trump in the aftermath of the the riots at the Capitol, she said, he let us down. He's fallen so far She said the words, I'm so disappointed that he didn't protect Mike Pence more. And obviously those are are kind of public extreme examples, but disappointment in people, it's not unique to government leadership. Office politics can have the same dynamics. Maybe you've experienced that as people massage the truth to look after themselves and not others. But it's not restricted to governments and workplaces. What about families? Some of us will know the deep pain as as families are torn apart because one or both parents let the family down. And let's not pretend we're only talking about the world outside the church. I think one of the most painful, disappointing things in the Christian life is hearing of a church leader who's fallen, whether it's serious sin or wandering from the truth or, worst of all, abuse their position to take advantage of people. Even this week, actually, I became aware of another situation like that. So how do we deal with it? Disappointment, especially in leaders. The world has a number of approaches, um, some of which we'll be hearing. There's denial, cover up the problems with more lies, say it's just not true. There's distraction. So let's not talk about those problems. Let's look at this over here, or let's look at someone else's flaws. There's downplaying. So yeah, maybe I made a mistake, maybe I misspoke, maybe I made a one-off error of judgment when under pressure, but who hasn't done that? And perhaps the last line of defense is this. 
I'm only human. Only human. And humans will be humans. I mean, we're all selfish sometimes. It's something Donald Trump was saying before the election, I think. When he was recorded speaking of women in a derogatory manner, he said, it's just locker talk. The ugly implication being, well, blokes say that kind of thing all the time. It can't be that serious because it's what, it's what guys do when they're on their own. It, it, we're only human. It's an ugly thought, but it, it's a very powerful line of defense because actually who of us can say, well, I've never been selfish. I've never told a lie. I've never used unkind words behind someone's back. I've never been greedy or lustful. You see, we recognize ourselves in that only human description. We start to think, well, what can you do? It's just who we are, only human. Except God doesn't agree with that. God does not agree that it's okay for human beings to be lustful or deceitful or self-centered or proud or cruel or greedy. He didn't make us like that originally. He doesn't want us like that ultimately, and he's not going to put up with us like that indefinitely. Last week, we saw John the Baptist, the last great prophet, warning us exactly of that. Um, John's role was to prepare the ground for Jesus. And when it came to sin and to compromise, he was having none of it. I do sometimes wonder what sort of headlines John the Baptist would get today. I mean, if he was standing outside Holyrood or Westminster or Washington or Chalmers, as he warns people in no uncertain terms that it's not okay how lots of us live today. Not okay at all. Not just because we let ourselves down, our own standards, or let others down, our colleagues or our families, but because most of all, we're disappointing the creator of us, letting him down. And yet, in God's kindness, he doesn't just send John the Baptist to warn us. No, as Freddie's been uh, saying to us, and we've heard in these bite sides, he sends Jesus Christ on an international rescue mission. See, that's what we really need. The kind of self-serving and sin and failure of human beings does not need to be denied or distracted from or downplayed. It needs to be fixed and forgiven. It needs to be acknowledged and actually dealt with. And John was clear that he couldn't really fix the problem. He could symbolically wash people with water, but what it needed was something on the inside, someone coming with the Holy Spirit to wash us and change us from the inside out. And John said, that person is Jesus, and he's about to turn up. So expectations as we come into our passage are pretty high. And the question is, is Jesus going to be another disappointment the way that other leaders are in every walk of life? Or is he unique? Is he different? Is he utterly, totally, authentically, unremittingly the real deal? Is he a man of total integrity, the true human, and therefore able to be the true savior of the world? And certainly if you are looking into Christian things this morning, we always hope there are folks tuning in like that. Let me say it does all turn on the question of who is Jesus Christ? What do you make of him? 
That's why we're always saying it's a great thing just to pick up one of these Gospels and read through it. See what you make of his life. It's all about him. And let me say, he is not a disappointment. Not at all. Sad, actually, that, that he gets so little airtime in our culture. So many updates in, in the news of uh, flaws in various leaders, but what about him? Schools full of moral values that come from him, but divorced from him himself. Jesus Christ barely gets a look in these days, but, but he is the only person who will never disappoint. I think if we've been a Christian for a while, we can kind of... We can kind of take that as a given. Like familiarity can blind us how just amazing it is. But I hope and pray this morning we'll grow our love and amazement at him. So let's dive in. Um, we've got three points this morning. You, you may really benefit from the outline today because it's got some diagrams on. Um, the, the link is below the YouTube video, as Robin said, or uh, in the chat of Zoom if you're on there. We're going to look at the passage in three blocks. So first, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3 to see what God the Father thinks of Jesus, his kind of assessment. Then we'll talk about that genealogy in the middle, secondly, and then finally, in chapter four, we'll watch Jesus facing temptation. So three parts. Um, we'll spend a fair amount of time in the first one because it's important. So firstly, verses 21 to 22. I've titled this, Finally, a truly God-pleasing son has arrived. Finally, a truly God-pleasing son has arrived. That is a human leader with whom there's no disappointment. Let me read again from verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. It's clear this is a massive deal, that the heavens are rent, the Holy Spirit is visibly descending, there's a voice from heaven. I mean, even through the whole Bible or through the whole of Jesus' life, these kind of things don't often happen. Audible voices from heaven are always a big deal. And more significant still are the actual words that God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Now, we really need to understand what this phrase means, um, not least because Son of God is the key idea in all three bits of our passage this morning. Just look with me if you've got your Bible open. So chapter 3, verse 22, you are my beloved Son. Then look at how the genealogy ends, verse 38, Adam is a son of God. And then look at how Satan's temptations begin in chapter 4, verse 3, if you are the Son of God. So son of God is clearly a big deal in this passage. Um, so, so tune in for a moment as I explain what that means here. The first thing to say is that we may assume that when this says son, we're talking about Jesus as the divine son of God. That is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God. We may know that from John's gospel and elsewhere. But actually, while Luke believes in that, that's not what he's focusing on here. After all, remember here, end of chapter 3, Adam is called a son of God. But Adam wasn't an eternal being, God on earth, the second person of the Trinity. He was a human being. So what does son of God mean then here in this context? Well, the, the way to find out is to realize that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. 
Um, Luke keeps saying that Jesus is fulfilling what was promised before. We, we heard that in, in Bite Size. This has always been God's plan. And that phrase, you are my son, is a quotation from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is talking about God's chosen king, a human ruler from the line of David, someone who would rule the nations. We thought a lot about that when we were in 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, And actually, Zechariah, a couple of weeks ago, talked about that. He said, praise God, because he's raised up a leader of salvation in the house of his servant David. And God says, yes, Zechariah's right. This is my son. This is my chosen king, my savior king who will rescue people. That's the first phrase. You are my son, my chosen leader, my ruler. But there's another phrase the voice gives us. With you I'm well pleased. The word beloved is added as well. My beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Which shows Jesus isn't just a ruler, but a pleasing servant of God. That's the other picture in Isaiah of this kind of human rescuer. It's what we read in Isaiah 42. A righteous servant as, as that um, chapter, verse four, uh, Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. This is the one God is well pleased with, the one who wasn't a disappointment. And again, we've already heard that in Luke. Uh, Simeon, when he held Jesus as a baby in his arms, uh, uh, quoted from the servant songs, Isaiah 42, 49, that this servant would be a light for the world a light for the nations. So here we are. We're at the baptism of Jesus and a voice from heaven quotes key Old Testament passages to say, this is the one. This is the ruler who is a servant. And in both cases, he's pleasing God. He's the God-pleasing ruler who is the God-pleasing servant. He's a servant king. And we... If we need more confirmation, uh, both Isaiah 11, talking about the king, and Isaiah 42, talking about the servant, both of them say you'll be able to spot him because the Holy Spirit will rest upon him. And so here, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus visibly. So, God has declared it. This is the success story. This is my chosen servant king. But let's explain a bit more of what his job description actually involves. And at this point, I'll explain the slightly strange pictures on the handout, if you can see that. Don't worry if you can't. But I've put on the handout a big crown to represent the king with an arrow pointing down because this king was always to rule over God's creation. And I've put a big ear to represent listening to God, his servant. Um, role. All the way through Isaiah, the, the defining characteristic of the servant is he actually listens to God, even when it gets tough. So here's God's verdict on Jesus. You please me. You're the son, the ruler, who actually listens to me. You don't disappoint. And so that's our first point. Finally, the God-pleasing son is here. Now, why have I spent so long walking us through that? Well, because Luke wants us to compare Jesus, who pleases God, 
with everyone who came before him. That's what the genealogy is doing. It's not just saying that Jesus comes from the right royal family, although it does say that. Did you notice? Verse 31, he's a son of David. He's in that family tree. He's qualified to be the king of Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. But, but it's not just putting him in the royal family because the genealogy doesn't stop at David. No, Luke wants to, to link him with someone further back as well. And so he goes back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, verse 34, the start of the Jewish nation. But he doesn't even stop there. Did you notice that? He, he carries on and on to verse 38, all the way back to Adam, the son of God. It's unique, actually, to Luke. Uh, Matthew, for example, just wants to connect Jesus with David, the family of royalty, and Abraham, the family of promise. But Luke wants to take us all the way back to Adam. Why? Well, because that's where the problems really started. Just think about this for a moment. Do we realize there was a time in our universe when the phrase, he's only being human, wasn't synonymous with selfishness or deceit or cruelty or disappointment. In fact, where you didn't need the word only, he's being human, and it's wonderful. God didn't make Adam and humanity to be like that. They weren't like that in Genesis 2. It was only when Adam turned against God, refused to, to listen to him with that ear, refused to be a, a true servant of God, well, that's when the rot began. And so Luke winds us all the way back, not to just the start of the throne of promise with David or the start of the nation of promise with Abraham, but all the way back to the origin of humanity itself because that's where it started. That's the start of the rot that's where the sin problem that John the Baptist identified began. The moment that humans first caved to the devil's temptation and put themselves before God. And ever since we've been caving, we've been disappointing ourselves and each other and our maker. But finally, finally hope is dawning. A new son of God is on the scene. Um, to use Paul's language, a new Adam, a second Adam. A brand new start for humanity as Jesus steps forward and is declared to be a son who pleases God, a servant king who never stuffs up. That's the scope of what's going on here. See, what we're going to see it will give us certainty that Jesus can actually offer hope in the face of sin, salvation for all nations in the hope of sin. And it is all nations, not just uh, Abraham's family, but every tribe and color, every uh, race and tongue. No wonder then Acts takes the Gospels to all, to all nations, the news of this Jesus. Now, you'll see on the diagram, I've tried to express that with uh, a kind of chain of, of um, Adam and then Israel and then the kings, all with crossed out ears because they didn't actually listen to God completely, and, and the crown kind of falling off their heads because uh, God won't allow people to rule in his world indefinitely if they don't listen to him. But Jesus is a fresh start. I think it's so easy to, to have a kind of cynicism just from the so many letdowns when it comes to leaders, so many new individuals raising up with the, the great hope for change. 
and just wondering, well, is it just going to be the same again? But with Jesus, finally, the pattern changes. Finally, someone who you can catch at any moment, public or private, any time of day, any amount of food in his stomach or not, any amount of tiredness and weariness from work, you can catch him anywhere. And he has integrity. He stands against the devil's schemes and temptations. And this is our third and and final point, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, where Adam and Israel, and let's be honest, all of us, fell, Jesus uniquely stands. Where Adam and Israel fell, Jesus uniquely stands. Now, for some of us, who've been Christians a while, these temptation narratives might be quite familiar to us. We may have been taught to to come here or taught from here or come here ourselves for for wisdom about how to face temptation wisely, kind of learn from Jesus. And no doubt uh, there are useful things we can learn from him. Uh, If I've hidden God's word in my heart, I might not sin against him. Well, Jesus is a, a walking example of that. He uses scripture in response to the devil's temptation three times. That's a great thing to learn. But let me say, if we think that that's the main thing Luke wrote this passage for, we're missing the point hugely. If we come to this passage just hoping for self-help tips on, on fighting temptation ourselves, well, we're missing the much bigger point he has to make about Jesus. It's actually surprisingly easy to fall into that trap when reading the Bible uh, we can come with an agenda, and it can even be a good agenda, like I want to change, I desire to deal with a particular sin I'm struggling with. It can be a good agenda, but it can, it can mean that I don't hear what the passage itself is putting on the agenda. For example, here I could go away with a few tips of how to face temptation myself and not notice that Jesus is the only single human being who ever has defeated the devil. See, here we, we are being asked by Luke to, to compare Jesus with Adam, the original son of God, and Israel, the adopted son of God. We're supposed to see the contrast, to see that where they fell, Jesus stands. Why do I say Adam? Well, remember what we've just had. Uh, Adam's just been called a son of God, and Jesus has just been called a son of God. Uh, they're, they're put next to each other as a contrast. And notice, um, uh, just like in Genesis 3, the devil is, is having a one-on-one encounter with humanity. And the temptations are actually the same kind of temptations. Temptation about food, temptation about ruling without God, and temptation to presume on God's word. It, it's all Genesis 3 all over again. It's the story of Adam 2.0. It's also the story of Israel. If you notice, we're in the wilderness for 40 days, all echoes of Israel. And the scriptures that Jesus quotes are all from Deuteronomy, Israel's time not trusting God in the wilderness. Clearly, this is a massive reset for humanity. And theologically, so much hangs on the next 13 verses. So much hangs on it. In fact, it's not an exaggeration to say the entire hope of humanity hangs in the balance on how this conversation goes. Why am I saying that? Well, 
If you remember, those of us in small groups in Romans, remember the second half of Romans, Paul contrasts the failure, the disobedience of Adam with the success and the obedience of Jesus. And he says all of our hope stands on Jesus' obedience. And now we're about to watch it unfold, watch it up close. And it's like today's sport coverage. Um, you know, when you, now you get kind of stump mics and you get players wearing microphones sometimes. You even with no crowd noise, you, you get to kind of hear what's being said on the pitch. Well, this isn't a game, but it is a battle, and humanity hangs on it. We know from Romans that Jesus' obedience is the foundation block on which the whole good news of salvation is built upon. You see, only because he had no sin of his own could he take my place on the cross and pay for my sin in his death. Likewise, only because he is righteousness can I join his place, be clothed in his righteousness, be united to him by faith, have God look at me and see a perfect record. Our eternity, our justification, it's hanging on how he responds to the devil here. So then, does he disappoint? Well, there are three temptations. And we may think, well, of course he's going to sail through. I mean, he's Jesus. But just look at some of the details. Look how sustained the temptation was, verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Look at the reminder that Jesus is human, verse 2. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended... He was hungry. He's genuinely hungry. He's fully human, an actual son of Mary, a son of Adam. And we know what happened to Adam and Eve when they saw a chance to grab some food that was officially off limits. We know what happened with Israel when they were in the desert and were complaining at the lack of food, turning against God, wanting to be back in Egypt. So what happens with this son of God? Well, the temptation comes, verse 3, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. It's, it's laced with that appeal to Jesus' position. Look, you deserve it. You've been declared the son of God. Of course you have the right to make yourself some bread. Just, just follow my orders and you can look after, number one, yourself. To which Jesus replies with God's word. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone where Adam and Eve had reached out, denying God's command not to. Jesus sticks with God's word. The rest of that quotation in Deuteronomy says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus sticks with God's word. Here's the question. Have you ever reached out to satisfy an appetite even though you know that God's word says not to. Whether it's food itself, I mean, greed, or other appetites. Adam and Eve, they saw the fruit look good, they fancied it. They relegated God's word to second place. And we all have. But Jesus, exhausted Jesus, hungry Jesus, weak physically Jesus, for the first time in history, stood firm. A son who actually has his ears open to God's word. A ruler who genuinely listens as a servant king. He's someone uniquely qualified to deal with sin. 
But the devil doesn't give up after one. So it's straight on to verse 5, temptation 2. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I'll give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me. I give to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, there may be a mixture of truth and lies in what the devil's saying here, but certainly he is called by the New Testament the, the, the ruler of this age. So I think this is a genuine offer. The offer is, is to be able to be rulers without being restricted by God, just like Adam and Eve were offered that they could be like God. They could decide the knowledge of good and evil. Though actually for Jesus, the, the temptation here is even... Uh, more difficult to resist. Again, we're, it's, it's, it's tempting to think this was easy for Jesus, but we, re, we need to realize that Satan here is offering him a way to get the crown without the cross. See, Psalm 2 said that the Son of God would, would actually own the nations in the end. He would rule the nations. But Jesus is the suffering servant first. The road he's on leads to a cross before the crown. If he keeps listening to his father, if he sticks to the plan that we heard in Bite Size, well, then it will be cross before crown. Satan says, well, well, hang on. Hang hang on, we could forego all that suffering. If you want the nations, if you want to rule, if you want the authority, we could do that without Gethsemane. And the cross. And after all, you deserve this. I mean, we could be great together. Just come and join me. God hasn't got your best interests at heart. To which Jesus, for the first time in humanity's history, sticks with God's word. Jesus answered him, It's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Where every other um, human being, every other king has turned to worship idols, gods that we make up, to give us the freedom to rule the way we'd like to rule, while Jesus stands with God's word. And then finally, um, we're out of time, so just very briefly, the, the, the third test. Um, in some ways, it's the hardest test, I think, because uh, here, the devil actually uses God's word, actually quotes scripture at Jesus, twists it, A lot like with Adam and Eve. Eventually he started twisting God's word, even denying God's word, presuming you will not surely die. Well, verse 12, um, when the devil puts that test to Jesus, Jesus answered him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so for the first time ever, a human being, a son of Adam, stands up not once or twice, but all the time, all three, and there are more to come, and he will stand as we go through Luke's gospel He is proving himself to be uniquely qualified as the sin saviour. He is the person who has no flaws to apologise for. Nothing to distract from. Nothing to downplay or deny. He does not have his own sinful record to carry. It means he's the only person who will not disappoint us. But more to the point, the only person who never disappointed a righteous Holy God. Which means, we'll see as we go on in Luke, he alone can pay for our sins. He alone can wash us clean. He alone can change us from the inside out by his spirit. (laughs) 
there's a lot on our minds at the moment, isn't there? With, with lockdown, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of just, let me survive the next week, the next day. I, I wonder if we're stopping to remember how wonderful Jesus is, how absolutely wonderful Jesus is, to remember that what a privilege it is to live at this time in the universe after Jesus, being able to look back to him as our hope, as the, the sun dawning, as Robin said. Certainly, if we're feeling we are stuck in particular battles at the moment with sin, if we're feeling ashamed at our sin, disappointed in ourselves, let alone others, well, well, Luke would say, John the Baptist would say, Jesus would say, turn to him. Turn to Jesus for help. This is the Jesus who can help. Full forgiveness, perfect righteousness in God's sight, and power to change. I mean, no wonder we want the news of him to go out to all nations. No wonder God the Father's plan is for people to hear about this. Because to miss out on Jesus is to miss out on everything. Life, forgiveness, eternity. You see, we admire Jesus. We love him. We trust him. We need him. We know we need him. And so we proclaim him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word, your rich word. We pray that you would help us to grow in certainty that Jesus, uniquely Jesus, is the one who can help us with our sin and save sinners from all over the world, from every nation. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.